Well, good morning. My name is Erwin Entz, and I serve as one of the pastors in our Grace DC network. Of breaking the bread of the Word of God with you this morning. We've been doing a short. You're telling me something, Paul. Turn it on. Oh. How's this? All right. We've been doing. Y'all got that my name is Erwin, right? And I'm one of the pastors here. Okay. We've been doing a short. Um, sermon series in the first couple of chapters of Acts over the past few weeks. This is the third of four, and we've been calling it the work of the Spirit through, uh, through the church. And this morning, we turn our attention to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 uh, to 36. And uh, the sermon title is listed in your bulletin as beginning at the end. And that's almost right, um, but this is how it goes with pastors. You keep working on the sermon, and maybe by the end of the week, the title has changed, and you don't have enough time to get it corrected in the bulletin. So, title of the sermon is, beginning at the end, subtitled, God's Rescue Mission. <laughs> beginning at the end, God's Rescue Mission, and the point of the message is this, that Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is both the fulfillment of God's plan and the beginning of God's rescue mission. The resurrection, the exaltation uh, of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is both the fulfillment of God's plan and the beginning of his rescue mission. Now, I know that some of you may have looked at the sermon text in the bulletin and said, man, that's a long passage. Is he going to read all of that? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it is indeed a sermon itself. So you're getting the benefit and the blessing of two sermons this morning, one in the passage and then the one I'm going to preach about the sermon in the passage. Look with me, Acts chapter 2 verses 14 through 36. It reads this way. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, this living and active word. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, by the preaching of your word, that you would meet us where we are, and that you would give us what we need, that we would see Jesus crucified, buried, risen, ascended, exalted, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and that we would become people who live not for our own glory, but for the praise and glory of his name alone. Do it for us, Lord God, for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen, amen, and amen. Well, in the year 2009, an Ohio judge named Paul Herbert created a program that he called Catch Court, C-A-T-C-H, Catch Court. And the word catch is an acronym for changing attitudes to change habits. And Catch Court is a two-year restorative justice program for women who are caught up in prostitution. Through this court, women are sent to a residential rehabilitation program to, to detox and to receive intensive therapy. And this is how Judge Herbert came to the point of creating this program. He said he was using Pastor Rick Warren's book, the purpose-driven life on Sunday evenings to disciple and to train his daughters in the Christian faith. 
And one night they asked him, they said, Daddy, well, what is your purpose? And he said, that really got me. I, uh, he said, I, I gave them a vague answer about being a, a light on the bench for Jesus. He said, but that night he candidly prayed this prayer to God. He said, God, I realize that being a judge is a unique position. Not many people get this opportunity. Can you show me some way that I could be significant for you in my work? And what God did in response to that prayer is to shake up his categories. How many of you know that coming to God in prayer doesn't change God, it changes you? He would regularly have victims of domestic violence before him in his courtroom. And one day, he saw a woman come in with bruises and thought that she was a domestic violence victim. And he looked down at the file in front of her and saw that she was actually a defendant. The charge in the case was prostitution. And it hit him that with similar bruises and hollow eyes that it was hard to tell the difference between a victim of domestic violence and a defendant charged with prostitution. And he began to research human trafficking and prostitution and sexual exploitation. And what he discovered astounded him that human trafficking was thriving in Columbus, Ohio, and there were limited means of escaping this cycle of exploitation and abuse. And he admitted that prior to this change, he would have said that women engaged in prostitution were involved in the world's oldest profession, and now he considers it the world's, uh, world's oldest profession, rather, and now he considers it the world's oldest oppression. He said, and I quote, the Holy Spirit continues to reveal how much I've been forgiven and how similar I am to the individuals that come before me. He's keenly aware of the fact that he's been rescued by God. God's rescue mission found him, and so he launches this program that becomes a rescue mission, helping save lives of people who have begun to realize their own need for rescue. And this morning we're listening in to the sermon by the Apostle Peter uh, jumping in on his day of Pentecost sermon here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and just as he promised, he has poured out the Holy Spirit to empower his people to be his witnesses, his representatives here on earth. And that's what's happening. The story of God's people didn't begin on Pentecost. His saving work began in the Old Testament, but something special and something new and something spectacular happened on the day of Pentecost. There was both a completion and a new beginning. The church begins at the end. The end is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises uh, to pour out his spirit on all people without discrimination of ethnicity or gender or class. And that promise, Peter is saying, is now complete. And so at the end, there's also a new beginning. The beginning of what 
Peter calls in this message the last days. Pentecost is the birth and the beginning of uh, God's rescue mission from that day until this one and on until the day that Jesus Christ returns. His church moves forward empowered by his spirit as the vehicle of his rescue mission. Nobody, nobody rescues like God. And the question is for us this morning, where are you? Do you realize your need for a rescuer? Judge Herbert sits on the bench deciding the fate of people who have broken the law, yet he's not blind to his own need for rescue. This rescue mission is what Peter is putting before us this morning, and this first Pentecost is marked by a sermon, a sermon that does what all sermons should do, result in a clearer and a deeper understanding of Jesus. Peter is explaining to the multitude of people from every nation under heaven who have gathered around the disciples the significance significance of what they are seeing. And so Peter has, he has a three-part sermon, so guess what we will have? We got a three-part sermon. I've got uh, three LPs to share with us this morning. He uses three Old Testament passages to show what now has begun as a result of what has been completed. We are going to talk about a lavish pouring from verses 14 to 21, uh, loosened pangs from verses 22 to 32, and a lifted pedestal from verses 33 to 36, lavish pouring, loosened pangs, and a lifted pedestal. And to make sure that we are clear on what I'm talking about in these three points, the lavish pouring is God's generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all who call upon the name of the Lord. The Loosened pangs is God's conquest, his victory over death and sin in raising Jesus from the dead. And the lifted pedestal is the permanent presence and power of Jesus exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Peter is front and center again. He stood up in the middle of the 120 disciples when it was time to appoint somebody to replace Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1. And now after the Holy Spirit has been poured out uh, on the disciples and they pour out into the street miraculously speaking in other languages as they declare the mighty works of God, Peter stands up again and he lifts his voice and addresses the multitude of people to explain what's been going on. We've just been told in the verses preceding how all these people are responding to this worship scene. They're hearing the disciples declare the mighty works of God in these different languages, and they respond with perplexity and cynicism. Luke said in in verses 12 and 13 of Acts 2, and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others uh, mocked, said, they are filled with new wine. And Peter gets up and he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay close attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. 
Some people thought they had it figured out and attributed the Spirit's work to something sinful like drunkenness. And now it is certainly possible for a large group of people to be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, but Peter is setting the record straight. This is not drunkenness. This is the work of the Spirit of God. Luke does something intentional here. Back in verse 4 of this chapter, Luke says that they, when they were gathered in the house and when uh, the, the mighty rushing wind came, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened next is that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, or to translate that, uh, that verb in another way, as the Spirit gave them to declare. And then in verse 14, Luke says that Peter, as he stood with the eleven, lifted up his voice and declared to them. Uh, the ESV translation that we use says utterance in verse 4 and addressed in verse 14, but it's translating the same verb. The point is that it's not just the miracle of tongues that was given to the disciples by the Spirit, but what Peter is about to preach in the common language of the people is also given by the Spirit. Both the exuberant worship of God in the worldwide languages and this clear proclamation of what it all means is driven by the Spirit of God. Both praise and preaching, in other words, are the Spirit's work. The message that these people from every nation needed to understand was that the end had come, the end that marked a new beginning had arrived, and this new beginning was the lavish pouring out of the Spirit of God. Peter says what you see might be new, but it's not unexpected. This was, is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 33. To two, where, where, the, where the Lord said through the prophet, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. I will show signs and wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet is announcing the coming of the great and magnificent day of the Lord when the Lord will act in righteousness and mercy. And Peter says, this that you see is that which was said. Joel, if you read Joel chapter 2, you would see that Joel uses the word afterward, and Peter rightly interprets that to mean the last days. He's saying, we are living in the last days right now, and guess what? We're still living in them. The sign that the last days have come is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And notice this, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, all flesh is not a common word or a typical word in our everyday vernacular. What God was saying 
to Israel through the prophet Joel 500 years before Peter's sermon was, I will pour out my spirit on the whole human race. What was Israel waiting for? What was it like to be in first century Jerusalem having the promises of God in the prophets and waiting for them to be fulfilled but not knowing how it was going to happen. N.T. Wright says it well in his commentary. He says it's only by imagining that world, a world where people were puzzling and praying over ancient texts to find or to try to find urgently needed meanings in times of great stress and sorrow that we can understand how Peter could even think of launching into a great long quotation from the prophet Joel in order to explain the apparently confused babbling and shouting that was going on. He said, if I was asked by a crowd to explain why my friends and I appear to be behaving in a drunken fashion, I don't somehow think I would at once start quoting chunks of the Bible, even the New Testament. But Jerusalem was full of people who were eager for signs that maybe the people of Israel had at last arrived at their destination, even if it didn't look like they thought it was going to. Yes, says Peter, we got to the point where all that the, the brochure said is starting to come true. These are indeed the last days. I will pour out my spirit on the whole human race, God says. Sons, daughters, young, old, male, and female slaves. This pouring out is like the picture of a tropical rainstorm. My father's side of the family is from Trinidad in the Caribbean. I remember the first time I went to Trinidad in, uh, during the rainy season. The, the sun could be out shining in, brightly in the heat of the day, and all of a sudden, there'd be dark crane clouds and, and a torrential rain pour and everything got wet. And then as quickly as it came, the clouds would be gone. The imagery from Joel is like that tropical storm. There is an abundance of the Spirit poured out. It's illustrating the generosity of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And who gets wet? Who upon who does this downpour come? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. You can't call on the name of the Lord and not get wet. What does it mean to be a part of this lavish outpouring? I will pour out my spirit, the Lord says in verse 18, and they shall prophesy. I'm a quote from another uh, one of my Anglican brothers, John Stott. I think he's right when he quotes from the reformer Martin Luther in his commentary by saying, prophesying visions and dreams are all one thing. That is the universal gift. The Spirit will lead to a universal ministry. Prophecy in that sense 
all of God's people are now prophets, just as all are priests and kings. So we understand prophecy here as the knowledge of God through Christ that the Holy Spirit kindles to make uh, burn through the word of the gospel. In fact, it is this universal knowledge of God through Christ by the Spirit that is the foundation of the universal commission to witness because we know him, we must make him known. You get it. With this lavish outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ without distinction of age or gender, social status or ethnicity receive the wisdom and the ability to know God. That is the day that that Moses hoped for in Numbers chapter 11 when he said to the Lord, listen, I can't bear this burden you've given me to be leading all these people. Moses actually said, Lord, just kill me right now. The Lord said, call the 70 elders uh, and I will put some of the spirit that is on you on them. And the 70 elders came and God took some of the spirit on Moses and, and put it on those 70 elders who had come to the tent. And then the spirit actually rested on two of the elders who hadn't come to the tent. And, and Joshua told Moses to stop them from prophesying. And Moses said, don't be jealous for my sake. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on on all of them. Well, what Moses longed for, what Joel had predicted, Peter says it's here. It has been fulfilled, and the result is that all who call on the name of the Lord, regardless of gender and age or race or anything else, shall be saved. And listen, to be saved doesn't just mean you get your ticket punched to heaven. It means knowing God's rescuing power, the power that is revealed in Jesus that anticipates in the present time God's great final act of deliverance. Do you know God's rescuing power? Have you experienced his deliverance from your disordered obsession with yourself? Are you able to say with the saints of old that I ain't what I want to be, but thank God I ain't what I used to be? Lavish outpouring is great news. It was necessary for them to understand that this is what the Lord does for all who call on his name, and it's necessary for us to understand and constantly be reminded that God hasn't discriminated. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you've been given his spirit, you know him, and you're able to make him known. As important that is as it is uh, to know and remember, Peter doesn't stop there. It's not enough to, to know that the spirit has been poured out. It's necessary to know why and how it came to be. So he explains why this lavish pouring came. It came because of the loosened pangs. It came because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His message in verses 22 to 24 is that this is happening because of what God did through Jesus Christ. He gets specific. Jesus the Nazarene, the one from Nazareth, who was attested to you by God. In other words, God proved what kind of man he was by mighty works and signs and wonders that God did through 
through him, as you yourselves know, Peter says. Peter didn't feel any need to verify that Jesus had done miraculous and mighty things. There were enough people among the multitude who had been gathered who could attest to that fact. What he does need to clarify is what happened to Jesus was God's plan all along. Jesus had told his disciples on several occasions that he would be delivered over into the hands of men who would beat him and scourge him and crucify him. And Peter points the arrow right at the crowd and says, you killed him. Having, cru having him crucified by the hands of lawless men. But when Jesus hung on that cross, battered and bloodied and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was no accident. That was not the, the picture of the victory of evil and injustice. It was nothing less, Peter is saying, than the definite plan of God. They were guilty of putting Jesus to death, but what happened was not an accident of history. Jesus was delivered up into the hands of lawless men according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and Peter lets them know they didn't know who they were dealing with. They thought it was over when Jesus died. They thought that when the crowd shouted, crucify him, that was the end, but it was only the beginning. God was going to get the glory. God was going to glorify himself by glorifying Jesus. Peter says God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Why was it impossible for death to have the final say over Jesus? Why is that? Let me come at it. This way. Anybody in here have a... Oh, let me ask you. Anybody in here an older sibling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means you got younger siblings, and you know that the job of younger siblings is to annoy and pester older siblings. You, you have experienced that, real life and in color. Well, you know, in our household, we have... We have three, we have four children, but three of them are boys. And our two oldest siblings, our two oldest sons are, are four years apart. And then uh, there's a, about an eight-year gap between uh, boy number two and boy number three, whom you all know here as Jeremiah. And you know, um, when they were all in the house together, right, Jeremiah would do what younger siblings do. Their job is to annoy their older siblings. And so Jeremiah would like to jump on and, and wrestle with his older uh, brothers. And, and, and they tolerate it for a little while. But as soon as they got tired of his jumping on them and bothering them, they, they, they'd, they'd just hold him down till he couldn't move. And they wouldn't let him go until he promised that he was going to stop messing with them. But listen, Jeremiah knew that he had a trump card in his back pocket. 
And all he'd have to do is call me daddy. And Ted and his brothers are messing with him. And he called me because he knows, he knew that not only did he know that I was in charge, but he knew that they knew that I was in charge. And that, and that if I said that they had to let him go, they had to let him go. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Peter is like, y'all thought death had something to say in this thing. Y'all thought death had some authority over Jesus. You didn't know who his daddy was. You didn't know that all God had to do was say, let him go. And he had to let him go. God's glory and his power and his might trumps everything. God was running this show all along, Peter says. Death was trying to hold Jesus down, but it was impossible to pull because everyone and everything, including death, has to listen to God. Quotes from Psalm 16 to make the point that the scriptures already told you that death would have to let Jesus go because it says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my whole being uh, uh, rejoices. My flesh will also dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says, David, what talking about himself. He says, I can tell you this with confidence that he died and he was buried. We know where his tomb is. We could go see it. To this day, his flesh saw corruption and decay, but David was talking beforehand about the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus, Peter says in verse 32, God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. All these folk you all think are drunk and full of praise because they are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Y'all are only witnesses to his death, so you don't get our praise. Do we really get this? Has it really sunk in for you that in Jesus Christ is the defeat of death? Death is more powerful than anything except God. Death is pervasive. That is, it places everyone in its grip. And the impact, when the impact of death hits us, it is rarely the case that we want it to come. Death is often personified in the Bible as an enemy, an enemy that we are all afraid of and powerless to fight. Not a week goes by when we do not experience the reality of death, you cannot turn on the TV and hear in the news one week where you don't hear about people getting shot or some tragedy or even listen, even if it's not the loss of life we experience. Uh, we are always being confronted with, with losses that remind us that this world is broken. Then to all that, into all that brokenness, into all that pervasive reality of death 
comes the reality that it was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. And because it was impossible for death to hold him down, because he got up from the grave at the crack of dawn on that first Easter Sunday morning, he has become our hope for life. In him, we join in the defeat of death. We partake of his glorious life. They needed to know the same thing that we need to know. The resurrection of Jesus Christ set God's rescue mission into full effect. They were guilty. Peter said, y'all crucified him. This is a corporate you, you all. How many of these people were there when Pilate said he was going to release Jesus and the crowd responded, crucify him? We don't know, but Peter doesn't leave anybody out. They were all guilty and in need of rescue. They needed the resurrection to happen. They needed the pangs of death to be loosed for Jesus if they weren't going to be left in their guilt. And listen, until Peter said this, they weren't even aware of their guilt before God. There's no indication that they had a problem with Jesus being put to death, and that's just like some of us. Having no sense of our guilt before God. Having no realization that our own sin, the corruption of our hearts, make it such that Peter might as well have been talking to us when he said, you killed Jesus. We become, when we become aware of the fact that God raised Jesus and refused to let him see corruption, our corruption becomes exposed. So our need for rescue also becomes exposed. It has always been and will always be easier for me to look at you and see what's wrong with you than it is to look inwardly. Prophets of old had grieved over the sins of the people. The people didn't see their sickness and their deep corruption. Jeremiah asked in Jeremiah 8, the harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved for the wound of my daughter, of my people. My heart is wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? And the answer to Jeremiah's question is yes, there is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. It is the resurrected Jesus Christ and God's rescue mission of grabbing up sinners like you and me and restoring us to life in his presence because Jesus Christ is not only raised up but he is lifted up and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He holds a permanent place at the right hand of the majesty on high and so our last LP is this lifted pedestal. How did this outpouring come? The exalted Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. Peter says in verse 33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see, Jesus is not passive. He's not sitting up in heaven twiddling his thumbs wondering what he's going to do with his time. 
He is actively working in salvation. He is actually actively mediating God's blessing uh, that leads to salvation and righteousness. Peter closes his sermon with one more quote from Scripture. This time he goes to the 110th Psalm, another Psalm of David. He says, David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he talked about Jesus' ascension back in Psalm 110 when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool what everybody needs to know for certain then is that God has made him Peter says both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified here it is again they need to be aware of their personal and corporate guilt do you know who it is you crucified not just some regular Joe but the exalted Lord and Christ Jesus had already applied this same verse that Peter quotes to himself in the Gospels, Mark chapter 12 and, and Luke chapter 20. And now that he's risen from the dead and exalted to the throne of God, his disciples, they now get it. And Peter says it here in his first sermon. The Apostle Paul will do the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Jesus' resurrection are the, is the first fruits of those who belong to Christ. And Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the pastor will say the same thing to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 and to which of the angels he said has he ever said sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet the testimony of the New Testament is that you need to know that Jesus Christ is exalted he is Lord in Christ he has authority and lordship over God's rescue mission. Listen, here's how God's rescue mission works. I wrap this up today. We heard it's Trinity Sunday. Here's how the mission works. The Father sent the Son and verified who he was through supernatural works. The son was crucified at the hands of lawless men, but that was a part of God's plan all along. The father raised the son from the dead and exalted him to his rightful place at the throne of God, and then the son lavishly and generously pours out his spirit on all who call on his name. He rescues them and sends them on his rescue mission. Do you get the fact that all of God, father, son, and Holy Spirit is in involved in your rescue. Peter clarifies that you cannot think about God's work without thinking about Jesus. At the core of God's work to rescue his world, to redeem it from the decay and devastation caused by sin and corruption at the core of that work is Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The question is, where do we fall in that mission? Are we those who call upon the name of the Lord and receive the Spirit uh, and join in the mission? Or are we those who don't yet get that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? Let everybody know, Paul, uh, Peter says, that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Christ. This was Peter's take-home point, the one that Joel was talking about when he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, and with the pouring out of his Spirit comes the beginning of the end. Listen, here's the deal. Last Sunday, 
He said it was Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the new covenant church. And unlike us, the church will never stop having birthdays. There will never be a year to come when we'll be able to say, oh, I remember the church. She died. No need for any more birthday celebrations. That will never happen. Why? Because she's kept alive and vibrant by her resurrected and exalted Lord. He continues to fill her with his spirit to be continued in, in, uh, in his continued presence in and to the world for his rescue mission. The question is, do we embrace it? Listen, we talk a lot about in the church and in the culture about being a woke church, being woke. And what we usually mean is, is waking up to the reality of systemic injustice and, and oppression and, and racism and, and the like, that the church has been asleep about those things. And yes, that, that's right, but listen, the, the wokeness that, 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 that Peter starts with and the wokeness that we need if we're going to be really woke is to know that Jesus is Lord and Christ and that we all stand guilty before him and need his rescuing power to come upon us. Any other wokeness doesn't really matter till we get that one. So, listen, God is committed to his rescue mission. God rescues sinners. We'll see that next week as we wrap up this, this, this sermon series. But listen, he rescues then and he rescues now. And his, the Spirit said then and the Spirit says now, do you see your need for his rescue? Have you come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is exalted? If so, it is for your praise, for the praise of God. If not, I will say to you, listen, don't wait another minute. Turn to the Lord and receive his salvation. Receive his rescue. Find yourself in his catch court. You might be his for the remainder of your days. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That you are the one who saves. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray, Lord God, that you would do your saving work in us, through us, and among us. And that we would be people, again, who live for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen.